Hi, I'm Crystal Mori, Teaching Channel Laureate and host of the new video series, Women Leaders in Education. Today, I'm here with Dr. Linda Darling-Hamlin, Charles E. DeCumman Professor of Education Emeritus at Stanford University and President of the Learning Policy Institute. Thank you for joining us here on the Teaching Channel as we share narratives, advice, and implication for women educational leaders. As a developing women ed leader myself, I really look to other women for that continued encouragement, that advice, and most importantly, those connections that create that sense of unity. And for me, that family that really drives me forward um, as a leader, but also in the profession itself. So today, on behalf of the many educators around our world and around our nation uh, that really look to you as a leader, as a boundary pushing and thought provoking educational leader, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Crystal. Well, thank you. As am I. My, truly my pleasure. So let's t before we get into some questions about um, your leadership uh, and how you rose to leadership and what, what kind of stewed that whole uh, momentum for you, um, if you wouldn't mind just beginning by talking about some of the current work that you're engaged in and what your goals are for this particular work. Well, I've just actually launched a new policy institute. It's called the Learning Policy Institute. And its goal is to bring research and evidence about practice uh, directly into the policy arena, working with legislators, uh, governors, other members of the executive branch to ensure that basically we create a world, uh, a policy world, that makes it safe for teachers to engage in good practice. Uh, the reason I've done this is because we've been through an era where, uh, frankly, much of the policy surround has been hostile to the kind of practices that teachers know will really enable kids to learn deeply, to develop uh, responsibility and skills that last uh, into adult life. And so we need a different kind of policy vision. In this country, we need a different kind of policy strategy, one that supports teachers in their learning and in their um, implementation of the work that they're trying to do, rather than, uh, frankly, sometimes getting in the way. And we also need policy that is more sensitive to the kind of learning that we need in the 21st century, which is not the old transmission curriculum where somebody tells you facts and you memorize them and spit them back on a test and go on to the next thing, but which prepares young people to be creative problem solvers, critical thinkers, communicators, uh, etc. So um, our goal is really to create a knowledge base and assemble the knowledge and evidence uh, about what this kind of learning requires and how to get it and work with policymakers. And we're doing that in uh, the federal arena. We're also doing that in a number of states. Uh, we helped um, develop some of the features of the new Every Student Succeeds Act, for example, which call for new approaches to learning. Uh, and we're helping states design their plans to implement it as just one example of the work that we're involved in. And is there any way for teachers to get involved in that work, or if they just wanted to know about it, how would they kind of follow this journey that you're currently on? Well, one thing to do to find out about it is go to the Learning Policy Institute website, learningpolicyinstitute.org, uh, and you can see some of that work. But also, in everything that we do, 
Um, the teacher voice is very present. The teacher's knowledge base is very much part of what we are building on. Um, when we work with states, for example, around ESSA, we are working with teachers and their representatives in associations, whether those are content uh, focused like the science teachers or the math teachers, or whether they are uh, teacher associations, um, to help figure out what the state should do and to be part of the uh, implementation of the new reform. So teachers are front and center for us, along with, of course, students at the heart of the agenda uh, and the way we think about it moving forward uh, in the places where we're doing our work. I know that, you know, just as a, uh, well, it's my first year out of the classroom, but I'm an instructional coach, so I'm with students and teachers all day long, and, uh, you know, as that, I'm just so thankful that you're bringing the teacher voice kind of front and center in that, um, that, that certainly gives me a whole lot of, of hope, um, you know, that we continue to progress in some, some really positive ways. You just shared some of your current work that you're engaged in. What inspired you to do this work? Well, I think that um, the purpose of education and the way in which um, I got involved and many other teachers get involved in education to really enable people to you know, be all that they can be to actualize their human potential is really what keeps me going and inspires me to do the work. I've seen it, uh, experienced it in my own life uh, and seen it in so many other people's lives that, you know, education really is the flame. It does, you know, uh, create every possibility that we have as conscious beings in this life. There are some people who've really inspired me over time, um, even, you know, historically, uh, people like W.B. Du Bois and Anna Julia Cooper, who was an educator in Washington, D.C., and created a progressive vision for education, in that case, uh, prim primarily for African-American students. Um, John Dewey, of course, who plagiarized everything I ever thought before I thought it, uh, you know, people like that. But also in my own life, uh, when I um, got finally um, into teaching uh, and then went into a program in, uh, at Temple University on, in urban education, uh, Bernard Watson was my mentor who was um, an avid, uh, forceful, proactive, progressive, thoughtful urban educator who had uh, changed the landscape of what was possible for a lot of students and was able to explain how you do that work. How do you do the work that really changes the possibilities uh, for young people, for schools, for teachers, for systems? Uh, that really inspired me um, because we look to teachers for so much and we expect so much of them and I expected so much of myself as a teacher. Um, but we rarely figure out how to give teachers and schools the environment in which they can do the hard work that society expects of them for all of the kids that each of us personally cares about. Uh, and so he kind of unlocked the door for me to figure out how you can change the system that supports the teaching that enables kids to learn. Yeah, that really resonates uh, with me, you know, Linda, as somebody who uh, is a self-proclaimed perfectionist in a way that's not always helpful to myself or to others. Um, you know, I have to constantly think about a system that feeds me so I can feed 
everybody else as well. Um, and there's certainly yeah. been opportunities where I've had that and opportunities in schools where I haven't had that. Uh, you know, so what you were talking about uh, certainly has really impacted me, you know, over my, uh, over my teaching career thus far. Uh, as you really rose into these different leadership positions and, and you know, kind of had these new opportunities to talk to people, um, to write, uh, et cetera, what was a challenge that, that you faced? Uh, well, there are lots of challenges, of course. Um, you know, one challenge is to um, be able to uh, figure out how to give voice to the right ideas in ways that people can hear them and act on them. And, and for me, everything I do, whether it's working with governors or legislators or, you know, our former president of the United States, uh, is teaching. Everything is teaching. And you have to think about what does the person you're wanting to communicate with already know and believe? Mm -hmm. uh, how you know prior knowledge, what's their prior knowledge? What is it that I want them to be able to understand and learn that will broaden their perspective or help them solve a problem? How can I make that accessible to them in a way that will be understandable, in a way that will be um, uh, hearable uh, and acceptable uh, and give them what information and examples and opportunities and solutions they need in a way that they can act on it. So for me that's all teaching and learning to do that in the policy arena, the way we as teachers have had to learn to do it pedagogically in the classroom. Um, has been a lifelong challenge, and I think I've learned a lot about how to do that in a way that does get um, good work done by people who often want to do that work but don't have the facts or the strategies or the support systems um, to do that. So you mentioned this, and something that this is bringing up for me is as I talk to people who might disagree with my own um, viewpoints, uh, and maybe not in like a policy conversation, but just in like a natural, here's my beliefs, do you have any advice for us on how you've been successful at those conversations that might encourage kind of conversation that comes together and brings us together as opposed to, um, you know, sort of pushes us further apart? Well, you know, these are going to sound very much like the lessons we get out of teaching, right? First thing is listen. Listen to the person that you're trying to communicate with and try to get an understanding of how are they coming at this, what are they thinking, what's their experience, what do they believe. Ask questions about their views and beliefs and how they evolved and what they're concerned about or worried about or trying to solve. Look for the common ground in those intentions wherever it can be found. Stay respectful uh, in the conversation and try to figure out um, a, a, a place where there's a common cause that you can build on or some shared understanding that can be um, developed from. Um, so I think you know all of these are, are part of, they're very much part of the political process, right? And Politics is necessary uh, to get things done in the policy arena. You've got to figure out where you can move people together. Um, there is a lot of um, what my good friend 
uh, would call mishigash. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. There's a lot of sausage making in the policy arena, and uh, sometimes you have to um, hold your nose and let the sausage get made. On the other end, but you don't ever want to lose your own values and your own um, concerns and your own goals. And so that's a that's an art form in and of itself. But I think those are some of the ways to get some good work done, knowing that you can't accomplish everything with every person at every moment uh, in time. Um, and then there are times when, you know, the politics is just so um, antithetical to what you believe or know you must do that you have to just walk away from that particular fight and say, we will agree to disagree. And, you know, we're going to we're going to disagree until we find a place where we can have a different conversation. Right. Completely. Well, you just mentioned that some of these conversations are, are, are quite tough and education right now is, is under attack, perhaps, you know, more so than it has been um, at any point, surely in my career. Uh, you know, there's a focus on test scores, resistance to Common Core. Uh, there's a teacher shortage that that's quite incredible. Um, and, you know, as, as of recent, a, a large debate on private versus public education. And this is kind of driving these conversations around education within at least the, the public domain um, outside of education and inside of education. Uh, what keeps you motivated and engaged in these challenging conversations? Well, Chris, what keeps all of us motivated is knowing that the kids are depending on us and that that's, you know, kind of the central motivation for everything. And every time we can make some progress, some students and some teachers are better served and more able to do the teaching and learning work that they're able, that they're trying to do. I think right now, if you take one of those conversations, which is around teacher shortages, um, you know, it's fundamentally important that we make uh, the kinds of gains in this moment when people are paying attention to the teaching profession again that allow us to build a true profession. So there are lots of ways that people could respond to teacher shortages. You know, mostly they, you know, throw warm bodies into classrooms, uh, you know, just trying to um, handle the problem at the most superficial level. But one of the things we've been able to do um, through the work that I'm involved in at the Learning Policy Institute is frame that problem for policymakers. First of all, we called attention to the fact that shortages were emerging. Second, we explained why they were happening uh, and what could be done based on all the evidence that we have from many, many years of research to recruit and retain teachers in a serious teaching profession that has stability, longevity, uh, that has uh, excellent people, well-supported and well-treated to stay through a career. So we've been able to help people understand what motivates teachers, what teachers need to do good work, the value of experience, for example. We just did a study showing that as teachers gain an experience, they become more effective all the way through 20 or 30 years of the career, and particularly so in collaborative environments. So how do we build those collaborative environments? What do principals need to know? and be able to do to do that. Uh, what motivates teachers to come into the profession, uh, which is partly things like salaries and, and so on, but it's also being efficacious and being able to meet the needs of kids. What kind of school environments allow teachers to be efficacious in meeting the needs of kids? Um, what are the things that drive retention? It turns out that we have a very high attrition rate in the United States that other countries don't have. 
So we're helping policymakers understand both what would attract people in, for example, coming into the profession debt-free, um, you know, with mentoring and high-quality preparation that keep you in teaching longer, and then the collaborative working conditions and supportive working conditions that keep people. And we've found that in many states, as we've been working across the country with legislators and governor's offices, in many states, both Republican and Democrat, there is an appetite and a willingness to put some of these pieces of um, advice into legislation and practice. Um, so that's motivating because every time we can improve the capacity of the profession to bring in great people who are well prepared and well supported, we make a huge difference in the lives of children. You know, as you talk about this, it's making me think of a couple of things that each and every one of us can do as we engage in these challenging conversations, which is first, do your research. Uh, you know, understand the problems and, and do the research so that we understand these problems as well in these conversations. And then second is get involved. Um, of how do we, you know, put ourselves out there in ways that, that not only talk about these conversations, but get involved with the the, you know, the root of these conversations in ways that further our own capacity to talk about it um, with larger society and in our buildings you know, ourselves. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing as I work on the teacher shortage issue is that how important it is for teachers to be a voice to their local legislators. You know, at the state level, your state assembly people, your state senators, are accessible to you. They read the letters that come from the field uh, when people come to the town halls and the uh, open office hours that they have in the community. They uh, will listen quite often. They want to know what teachers say about what would keep them in the profession and what would make them stay and what would bring others in. So I'm seeing a lot of teachers getting engaged around this issue, both individually uh, as members of um, associations, uh, as national board teachers, you know, sometimes connected to um, groups of networks of teachers that they're uh, affiliated with. And um, I'm seeing a lot of receptivity to that voice and to those letters and uh, calls and conversations um, from people in state legislatures and in um, departments of education who want to solve the problem and need to hear that voice. I think we have such an opportunity right now to really take the moment that's been given to us and find our voice and connect with others and share you know, our viewpoints um, in a way, as you mentioned earlier, that encourages listening and unification, uh, but at the same time moves us you know, in a forward direction um, as well. So many of my colleagues um, and women leaders that I talk, or young women um, and, and women teachers that, that I get the chance to talk to right now um, are just really beginning to see themselves as leaders. I coach a number of teachers who are sort of on that precipice of thinking about like, how might I take on a leadership role, whether that's a committee head or even thinking about moving into administration um, or as myself as a, a blogger and somebody who talks about education. Uh, to these up-and-coming women educational leaders, what piece of advice would you give them that prepares them for the road ahead? 
I guess I would give a couple of uh, thoughts. One is, um, you know, as you're emerging into leadership roles, uh, try to figure out what matters most uh, to the people around you, the people that you're working with uh, and engaging in leadership with, uh, in terms of changing conditions or changing uh, the way of working in a in a context such that it really makes a difference for kids. Keep kids front and center uh, and be thoughtful and um, articulate and strategic about what will allow people to achieve that goal of making that context, making those conditions, um, making their practice uh, better for students. I think when you're focused on how change or um, collective engagement helps kids, you are standing on the ground that everyone in education uh, should be standing on, uh, and most people are standing on. Um, and it gives, I think, many uh, educator, educators and many women uh, leaders um, the sort of deep moral um, standing and core that enables them to speak up. Um, mm. It's not always easy to find your voice, to figure out how to speak up, and to be willing to assert, you know, a point of view or a um, way of moving forward. But when you know you're doing it for the kids, and you've thought about how it will benefit the context you're in, uh, it's easier to find that courage to give voice, and people will respect it they will uh, resonate with it. Uh, and there may be times where it's harder to be heard uh, and to uh, gain the respect and the opportunity to contribute. Uh, but if you stay true to those principles and to that focus on the students, the opportunity will uh, open up. You know, it reminds me that we are raising children inside of our classrooms to find out who they are, who their authentic selves are. But yet we as teachers are doing the exact same thing every day and finding out who we are. And as we do, it certainly seems that there's this opportunity to whatever is our core um, issues or our core, uh, what drives us our passions and opportunity to engage uh, in those conversations will sort of naturally follow as we fall find what it is that um, that is in our heart, that kind of most pressing um, issue. Earlier in our conversation... That, on that point, I think the other piece of your suggesting is also to find the uh, people with whom you can collaborate, right? Any right. act of leadership is an act of collaboration. And it's always about figuring out how to join hands with others um, to enable others to also take leadership and take steps forward. It's, um, you know, I was an English teacher, so I always think about things in literary terms, but Langston Hughes wrote a wonderful poem called Freedom's Plow, and in it he talks about how um, we find a community of hands to help. And I think at the root of it, it's finding that community of hands to help with the focus of how that will move students and their learning forward. You bring up a great point of the essence of collaboration and the importance of it for not only moving you forward, but for what you talked about earlier, teacher shortage and 
uh, maintaining in the career field as well. Uh, before you mentioned what it was that sort of led um, you into this work, when you think about current people that inspire you today, um, whether these are people inside or outside of education, who are the people that you look to today uh, to continue the work that you do? Well, you know, a lot of this work is um, very political and requires uh, a focus on how we're going to make equity and uh, rights available for the children we serve, the families we serve. Uh, one of the people I admire greatly is Sherilyn Eiffel. She is the president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Uh, they've been litigating for many, many decades around um, uh, civil rights and, and equal rights in education, um, desegregation as well as funding reforms as well as simply uh, requiring attention to the um, uh, needs of children and the needs of communities. Um, and they've got their hands full as many other lawyers do these days. Um, so I think she's very inspiring. I also think about some of our political leaders. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Patty Murray, who is the ranking minority leader in the Senate Education and Labor uh, Committee. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, who has just gone to Washington from having been the Attorney General in um, California, um, who, you know, all the women who planned the Women's March are on my list of heroes. You know, one of the most important, largest scale march in U.S. history by a long shot, uh, largest scale march across the world by a long shot, women standing up with men and sons and brothers and daughters and mothers and so on saying, you know, we stand for uh, love, not hate. We will, you know, organize ourselves together to uh, pursue the kinds of policies that raise everyone up um, on an equitable footing. Um, and Kamala Harris, when she was giving a speech for the Women's March, said that she's often been asked because of being first in various roles to talk about women's issues. And she said, let's talk about women's issues. Let's talk about um, national security. It's a woman's issue. Let's talk about employment. It's a woman's issue. Let's talk about education. It's a woman's issue. And she went on and on. Um, so I think that um, all of the women who are standing up now and saying, we can have a better world. We can have a world that is motivated by collaboration and tolerance and peace and love and coming together and working for a better future for our planet, for our children, uh, for our schools, for our workplaces, are the people that should inspire all of us. Uh, and it's what we need at this moment, really, in our country and worldwide. You know, uh, Patty Murray is uh, out of my home state, or out of where I'm still, I've always been here. But uh, it makes me think, uh, she ran, you know, Years ago when she was first elected, uh, she ran as a mom in tennis shoes, and that was her platform that she ran on. And still these well, number of years. Was, she was a preschool teacher also. Right, right, right. And, and, I, you know, as and a, I think that, that, has, that has built her skill set for managing people in the Senate, you know, because if you can be a preschool teacher, you can do just about anything in terms organizing productive <laughs> behavior from people who may not otherwise be, you know, ready to get organized. 
Right. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's really great to see her leadership and to think that what she ran on years ago um, is still the same thing. She's still that same person, that authenticity of that mom, that teacher in tennis shoes, um, getting things done for, for women and for the good of all, um, surely speaks, speaks to my heart, you know, as well. As along with it was my birthday was the day of the Women's March. And so uh, for me as a women leader, I sort of felt serendipitous of that uh, it was on my birthday. <laughs> so I was quite lucky. Well, as we sort of wrap up our final question here today, uh, when you think of a word or a phrase that comes to mind, when you think of a description or a characterization of women leaders, what would that word or phrase be for you? I think one word would be determination. Um, you know, the determination to persist. And um, I think of the work that's going on now under the hashtag she persisted, um, which is the metaphor for uh, any work that gets done. You know, anybody who's ever accomplished anything in the world has experienced various kinds of challenges and obstacles and failures and defeats, but very important, as Maya Angelou put it, that while we experience defeat, we are not defeated, um, and that we persist with determination until the goal is achieved. Uh, I have a little t-shirt which says, um, you know, I've been put on this earth to get certain things accomplished. At the rate I'm going, I may never die because there's so much to do. But we have to, you know, we have to really organize ourselves and think every day about how will we persist um, to accomplish what we know is um, necessary and important and um, essential for the good of all of the children uh, and people that we serve. Well, I just want to thank you today for your participation in this conversation, but more importantly for your continued service um, and for your continued leadership on behalf of all educators, students, families around our country um, and our nation. We are so thankful for you and the role model that you set um, in terms of how we should be behave and drive our own selves and our own, um, allow our own voices to lead the way for us. I, I listened to one of your TED Talks recently about assessments and you mentioned that in terms of assessments but we're sort of at a turning point in our country in terms of how we think what assessments look like. Um, I would extend this turning point to not just education right now but our culture um, as a whole. We certainly have an opportunity that's been presented to us at this moment to find our voices, to enter the conversation if we haven't already entered it, or to continue the conversation um, that has been started as we listen, as, as you mentioned, but, but also not lose sight of those, those things that are most valuable and important to us. Um, so I just want to thank you for helping us think about how our voices might enter the conversations and how we might approach this turning point um, as an opportunity to unify the conversations um, of all of those um, as we find out who we are at our core. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Linda.